0: Well, that is very true, Lauren. I don't know who told you that fun fact about I Love Lucy, but it is my very, very favorite. And I will disclose to you that I think I can tell you within the first five seconds of the opener which episode it is. That's how much of a fan I am. (laughs) Well, good morning, every woman's grace. When Lauren first asked me to teach numbers, I said, okay, as long as there aren't any. I don't do math, I say that all the time. And actually, I suffer from a real condition. So says Google. Math anxiety is more than just being nervous about math. It is characterized by feelings of panic, tension, and helplessness, aroused by doing math or even just thinking about it. Researchers say some 20% of the population have this condition, so I know there are some sisters out there who sympathize with me. Thank you. There's a shout out, right? But thankfully, in regard to the book of Numbers, all of the counting has been done for us by the scholars who have gone before. So have no fear, there is no math test. And actually, the most common title in Hebrew for Numbers is in the wilderness. The word wilderness is used 48 times in Numbers, and that's really more descriptive. Because Numbers is the history of almost 39 years of the Israelites kicking up dust, wandering in the desert. So by way of review, remember our theme in the Pentateuch. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell with you in the land. And you also remember our redemptive thread, right? Land, seed, blessing. And in Numbers, there is a heavy concentration in the land because you have the census numbering the men who are ready to go to war and take the land. And then the next census, the one that comes later, you have the numbering of the men, but you also have numbering in order to divide the land that is going to be given to them. So heavy concentration on the land. And I hope that you're excited to study this portion of scripture. Numbers has a lot to teach us remember that the Torah, the Pentateuch, means instruction. So in each of these five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, here we are in Numbers, and then we'll be in Deuteronomy, is for our instruction. Now, ladies, Numbers continues the account of God's faithfulness in making Israel a great nation. The land of Canaan, the promised land, would-be Israel's in spite of their record of unbelief and unfaithfulness, because God is faithful to keep his covenant. So where are we? Well, we've come out of Egypt, and we've had the Levitical laws, and it's been about a year and two months since the Exodus. So the events from chapter 1 Of Numbers to chapter 14 occur the year after the Exodus, and then from chapter 20 for the rest of the book, that's 40 years after the Exodus. So in the middle, you have about 39 years of rebellion and the Lord's judgment. So someone has described Israel's wanderings as the longest funeral march in history. Interestingly, not much is written about those actual years because most of it is spent in aimless wandering. So Numbers was written by Moses, of course, in the last year of his life while the people were on the eastern side of the Jordan River across from Jericho, which is where the conquest for the land of Canaan began. And so an easy way to remember this, and it is in your introductory notes in your lesson, is it's broken up this way. So you have obedience in chapters 1 through 10. You have disobedience in chapters 11 through 25. And then you have renewed obedience in chapters 26 through 36. And then they're finally poised to take the land. So the themes I have are preparation, separation, and dedication in chapters 1 through 10. So that will be the outline I will follow And one of the refrains that you are going to hear in chapters 1 through 10 is, Thus the children of Israel did all the Lord commanded, which is great. Wouldn't you like to say that at the end of the day with your kids? They did everything that I commanded all day long. All right, so preparation 1 through 4, chapters 1 through 4. Open your Bibles if you haven't yet, and we're in chapter 1 and The Lord instructs Moses in the tabernacle of meeting to take a census. So the census is where we get the number of men from each tribe able to go to war, which is sort of ominous because, of course, it means that the land is going to have to be taken. So Moses and Aaron plus 12 men, from one from each tribe of Israel, gathered the people and counted them. So this would be a picture of the scale of operation necessary for taking the land. So the count reflected a total of 603,550 men. You see how I had to write that out? Because if I just looked at the number, my math anxiety would have kicked in. Okay, so that number, though, is minus the Levites. They have their own census. So this number, if you include the women and children, you're going to get a little over 2 million people. That is a pretty Herculean effort to get all of those people organized and ready to go. But we're starting to see some differences between the Israelites running amok in Exodus 32 with the golden calf and this group of people. Because you have those Levitical laws now, they're getting more reined in and they're more focused. And you have a more obedient group ready to march. So moving to chapter 2, we see the organization and placement of the tribes. And what's notable here is you have Judah in a place of prominence. And Judah has the largest amount of fighting men. They have 74,000, over 74,000. And as thinking about this, as only God can do, you have an entire generation that is going to die in the wilderness, which we'll learn about later in Numbers. But God in his sovereign power brings up the next generation exactly as planned. And the men of Judah in the second census, taken in chapter 26, number 76,500. So every tribe had a gain or loss in the second census, but Judah remains the most powerful with the most number of men. So God precisely orchestrated the births of another generation to make the necessary number for each tribe. Never doubt his perfect control. And remember, we know that Judah will continually be singled out because that is the tribe Messiah will come from. And you trace that in your lesson back to Genesis 49.10. And in Revelation 5.5, which I love this verse so much, You saw that in your lesson as well. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah, which is Christ, of course. It's always fascinating to think when we study the Old Testament. Numbers was written somewhere around 1400 B.C., And then we're tracking that history all the way back to the tribe of Judah. And here we are in the church age, 2022. But there is still this amazing prophecy to come. I think that's exciting. We're right in the middle of it. So here we are. We're talking now about the organization and placement of the tribes around the tabernacle. You have Judah in a place of prominence. And you also have Moses and Aaron and the priests given prominence as well. So on the slide, you see the Levites were positioned around the tabernacle as a buffer to God's wrath. And we saw that in 153, verse 153, God said, but the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the children of Israel. Isn't God's mercy always present? And that's a theme too. And you think about the warnings in Leviticus that we saw. Why? So that we may not be disobedient and suffer from the disobedience and the consequences from that. God continually offering protection and mercy from his own wrath. And I think it's helpful. It's helpful for me when we think of God's wrath, not to do it in a compartmentalized way, but rather it's part of his whole being and character. It's coupled with his patience and his mercy. And most importantly, that we would consider Jesus Christ for the wrath of God that was due us to our sin in order that we might be saved, Romans 3. Because we were once children of wrath, right, ladies? But having trusted Christ, we've been delivered from the wrath to come. So you can see some special things about the Levites with that protection. And back in Exodus, God set apart the firstborn of Israel's males to be the family priest. That's how it was then. But God has now put the Levites in that place, and they are considered by God the firstborn to carry out the priestly duties. And out of this tribe, we have the Levites, the priests, and the high priests. So the Levites are all descendants of Levi, of course. But in order to be a priest in chapter 3 of Numbers, you have to be a son. I'm sorry, let me go back. You have to be a son of Aaron in Aaron's line to be a priest. So in chapter 3 of Numbers, now we can go there, it mentions Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who offered strange fire or profane fire before the Lord. And they were promptly killed. That was in Leviticus last month. So Aaron's two other sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, were now carrying on as priests, and they do a much better job, actually. So keep your ear out for Eleazar's son, which is Phineas, in Numbers twenty-five, and how and what he does, and how God blesses that line. So that's an interesting thread. As well. Moving to chapter four, the specific duties are given for the duration of the wilderness. That's what's listed there. And you also know from your lesson that things are looking good. They did what the Lord commanded. God gives detailed explanation and he gives a specific call to service, and they report accordingly. So there are gold stars at this time all around. So just by way of review for just this section in preparation, we have the census and the tabernacle with the organization of tribes around the tabernacle according to what the Lord commanded Moses and the place of the Levites and preparation for movement toward the promised land. So... We're going to talk about separation now, and that would be chapters five and six. This portion covers the purity of the camp, and focus is on individual holiness and relational holiness. So beginning of chapter five, God gives some structure for people who needed to be put outside of the camp due to uncleanliness, and then, how to confess your sin, and there needed to be restitution between the parties. Reminding the Israelites, the key, that all sin is against God himself. And you can read that in Numbers 5, 6. Speak to the sons of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against the Lord, and that person is guilty. So, When we see this sin spoken of here, it's described as an unfaithful action against God. Acting unfaithfully means acting treacherously or in violation of allegiance. So it's very serious. God also made it clear when you sinned against someone, it wasn't enough to just say, oh, I'm sorry, and move on. The offender had to pay the injured party, whatever that, specific amount was, plus 20%. Teaching the people sin is costly and it hurts. It hurts others. And with true repentance comes honest restitution. And of course, that's easy to apply in our own relationships. True repentance brings honest restitution between two people. So in the rest of chapter 5, we have an interesting story of what a man was to do if he had what it says in verse 14 is a spirit of jealousy. The wife in question may or may have not defiled herself and committed adultery. This would just be suspicion on the husband's part. And apparently it isn't too far afield of practices that did happen in the ancient Middle East. They were called tests. They were common, but actually the name for them was an ordeal. So that kind of gives new light on the word ordeal. (laughs) It was such an ordeal. Yes, okay. So the husband brings the wife before the priest. They go through a ritual. If the woman is found guilty, she will be found out by a physical change, it says in verse 22. But if not, she will be free and clean and able to conceive children. The focus would be on relational holiness in its most intimate sense. It's a very terrifying rule. It would be meant to deter, I'm sure, the sin of adultery, just like with Ananias and Sapphira and the book of Acts in front of the whole church, dropping dead because they lied to the Holy Spirit. That has an impact. And it's just one of those instances where fear is your friend. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear God, keep his commandments. So this passage is a little tough, though. It's a little strange, Some people think maybe, you know, it's unfair, why the woman, not the man, etc. Well, we don't really completely know except for what scripture tells us. But some of the things that I read, we don't apparently read about this ever taking place. So I don't know, perhaps it never had to. Perhaps it was such a deterrent that it never happened. And of course, nothing like this was ever to be taken lightly I always think of Proverbs 27:4 Wrath is cruel and anger a torrent but who is able to stand before jealousy? And in my study note it says that jealousy is the most uncontrollable sin. So that's heavy. If this restored a marriage relationship with somebody maybe that was, you know, jealous or what have you or had that suspicion, it would be a good thing for that jealousy to be put off. And I will just say this personally for those ladies in the room that are married. um, I doubt very much that my husband, probably or yours either, would take you before the priest without serious consideration. Because if you are found innocent, that would be one long camel ride back home, right? (laughs) So the principal point... Principal point is within God's covenant, this is how you have to remember it, with Israel, there should be no hidden sin among God's people, nor any suspicion of sin, whether that be corporately, between two friends in the congregation, or in marriage. And then moving to chapter 6, this is all about the Nazarite vow. And I I don't see the term before chapter 6, so... This is apparently a separate, out-of-the-ordinary vow. And of course, you had some guidelines there. It was voluntary. It was open to men and women. And so any Israelite could say, I'm going to make this commitment for this vow. And then the standards were no grape products, no cutting of one's hair, and no going near a dead body. And then you did that for an appointed time. So in Numbers 6, 6 through 9, you can read it with me. It says, All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother or brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. And if any man dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on that day of his cleansing. On the seventh day, he shall shave it. So it's very strict. Even if your parents died, you couldn't partake in any of that. But if it happened and somebody were to, you know, have a heart attack right next to you, then you would have to make a sacrifice and start all over again. But we learned about that, didn't we, last month in Leviticus, that failing to honor one's vows was a sin. And so it's very serious. Of course, that's true for us today. Let your yes be yes and your no be you no. Know. And although the Nazarite vow is an Old Testament concept, it did happen in the New Testament. Paul takes a Nazarite vow in the book of Acts. And of course, as Christians, we are to be separate and holy unto the Lord at all times, not with an outward display that you would see connected to what the Nazarites were doing, but rather in Romans 12, 1 through 2. So for Christians, the ancient Nazarite vow just would symbolize the need to be separate from this world, a holy people consecrated to God. So in light of that, ladies, how is your separation going? Right? You're separate from the world. Do you act like it? Are you known for your love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control? When you talk about your husband, if you're married, or in the way you treat your husband— is there a difference than the way worldly women treat their husbands? What about your tone of voice with your kids? Your patience in enduring trials, a boss or a coworker that you have to endure, your response to the government? It's easy to fall into worldly thinking sometimes and speech sometimes, and it's easy to get discouraged. But remember Romans do not conform to the pattern of this world which is the contemporary current world system dominated by Satan. So we need to always think about how are we outwardly manifesting what's truly going on in our hearts. Do we have that inner redeemed nature? And is that being expressed? So how's that going? How's your struggle in the flesh, with the flesh, going? So right after this section of separation and holiness. It says in Numbers 6, 22 through 27, and you can read that with me. It's a very famous and beautiful blessing. And it's on the heels of this really serious uh, passage. So it says in Numbers 6, 22, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, this is the way you should bless the children of Israel. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. So if you go to Hobby Lobby, this is one of those verses that is on every throw pillow and every mug in the store. But interestingly, it's not so different from the ancient Israelites apparently In 1979, in a cave overlooking the Hinnom Valley outside of Jerusalem, two little miniature scrolls were found, small little amulets with silver leaf, with about 20 lines scratched into their surface. And they had apparently been worn around the neck with a cord as jewelry. And after much work, it took them three years to unroll it. Only about three inches long, and the first word they were able to decipher was Yahweh after more work, they were finally able to unravel it, and it was Numbers 6, 24 through 26. And so you can see them in the Israel Museum today. They are the earliest known citations of biblical text in Hebrew. They predate the Dead Sea Scrolls by more than 400 years. So God preserves his word. And I love the blessing because it's God himself. He is saying, say this, Doesn't that sound familiar? This is how you should pray. If you want to bless them, say these words. It's like the disciples' prayer. Jesus said, when you pray. And echoes of this are heard throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 67, 1 through 2 says, God be merciful to us and bless us. Cause his face to shine upon us. Selah, that your way may be known on earth your salvation among the nations. The blessing is to the entire congregation, but it's personal. King David makes a request for the personal application of the blessing. So it's corporate, but it's also personal. Psalm 31, 14 through 16. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. And one of my favorites, and I'm sure is yours too. My, time, my times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. So this is a call for God's nearness and his presence. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And we have the richest of blessings when you think about Jesus's words in John fourteen twenty seven: Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Take that to heart. One of the things that I know and we see so much, especially these days, is that fear enslaves those who do not know the Savior. Not so for a believer when Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, meaning restless or distressed, let not is a verb, which means it's a command, and it's very strong. Do not let your heart be troubled, categorically and absolutely. He is the author of peace, and he is the source of it. And it doesn't mean that we will not have godly concern or frightening circumstances. That is going to happen. But, but, the peace that he gives us is supernatural. Supernatural. So isn't that comforting? Not something I have to drum up, but it's supernatural in me, given to me by him. And scripture contains over 400 direct references to peace. Jesus said to the woman in Luke 7.50 who wept at his feet and anointed him with oil, your faith has saved you, go in peace. When he healed the woman in Luke 8.48, and he said to her, daughter, be of good cheer, your faith has made you well, go in peace. You have the peace with God. That's first, which is the greatest peace there is. Do you need a reminder of that this morning? Do you need a reminder that the Savior says, be of good cheer, I have given you my peace. That his face shines upon you and promises you peace. That his care is available and he is inexhaustible in caring for your concerns. That you glorify him. When you are at rest in your heart, confident that your heavenly Father is delighted to give you peace. He is the source of every blessing. We know that. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And it's just beautiful to be blessed with God's nearness and his presence and his peace. And then in verse 27, it says, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. And we know this, the name of the Lord represented his person and his character. And I thought, what are some of the names of God that we've been introduced to since we started our study? Thinking about the revelatory truth that God is revealing himself through the pages of the Torah. Well, we have learned That he is the God who sees. Remember when the angel of the Lord met Hagar by the spring of water in the wilderness and gave her a blessing? The Lord had seen her affliction in Genesis 6.13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? Indeed he did. God told Moses to tell the children of Israel, I am, has sent me to you, the self-existent one. In Exodus fifteen twenty-six, it talks about him being, for I am the Lord who heals you. In Leviticus 20, verse 8, and you shall keep my statutes and perform them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And then Abraham, when he goes to sacrifice Isaac, and instead God provided a ram in Isaac's place, and Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. And then in Genesis 21, 33, Abraham planted a teramisk tree in Beersheba and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. So just in a few verses, he is so immense. He blesses us, heals, sanctifies, provides, and is everlasting. He is so past compare and willing and gracious to us to shine his face on us and bless us and give us peace. So moving from separation now to dedication, and this is chapter 7 through 10. In chapter 7, we have the offering of the tribes. Then in verse uh, 789 at the end, it says, Now when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice of one speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of testimony from between the two cherubim, thus he spoke to him. So that's what God said he would do in Exodus 25, 22, when the mercy seat and the ark and everything was ready that he would speak to him there. And then in chapter eight, you have more of the overall description of dedicating the tabernacle with attention to the Levites being cleansed, since they were going to come into contact with the holy objects. In verse 19 of chapter 8, you will read that with me if you would like. And I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the children of Israel to do the work for the children of Israel in the tabernacle of meeting and to make atonement for the children of Israel, that there be no plague among the children of Israel when the children of Israel come near the sanctuary." (laughs) So that's lovely how often he calls them the children of Israel. So the Levites were given as a gift to the congregation. Our acts of service are gifts to one another. Pastor John in Ephesians a few weeks ago talked about Christ's amazing sacrifice so that we would be given gifts to use in the church. And that is a great principle point for us. It helped me to think about service in that way, that it is a gift 1 Timothy 4.14 says, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. So this is the note in my MacArthur Study Bible, says the gift is that grace given to Timothy and to all believers at salvation, which consisted of a God-designed, spirit-empowered, spiritual ability for the use of the ministry, in the ministry. So we think about that, and I think about... Whatever it is we're doing, handing out donuts, serving in the nursery, teaching, administration, you name it. Do you consider that God is using you as a gift to your brothers and sisters in Christ? And how much it cost him to purchase that gift? To me, that really raises the bar in our service to one another. So, in verse 8:22, It says that the Levites did their work as the Lord commanded through Moses. So things are still looking good for obedience throughout the camp. Remember chapters 1 through 10, Israel is obedient. So then chapter 9, it's the second Passover. So God tells Moses in 9, 1 through 3, Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, let the children of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the 14th day of this month at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all its rites and its ceremonies, you shall keep it. So recall that the first Passover was held in Egypt in Exodus 12. This Passover is one year later. Sadly, this would be the last Passover Israel would celebrate for the next like 38 years because of God's judgment that takes place in Numbers 14. In fact, this second Passover was the last Passover all of the men of Israel would ever celebrate, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, who show trust in the Lord. And you'll see that when we get to that part of the story. So when Joshua, he eventually leads the new generation into Canaan, and God restores his people and everybody's in good favor, that's when they begin again to celebrate the Passover. And that's in Joshua 5.10. It says, Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. So that was only when you get to Joshua, only the third Passover in 40 years. You had Exodus, you have this one in Numbers, and then not again for 40 years. So things in Numbers are going to get worse before they get better. So verses 15 through 23, we're still in Numbers 9. God led them to Sinai by the pillar of cloud by the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. So he has begun to lead them toward the promised land. So they stuck to instructions. Remember, obedient Israel. I love this. We even see a little bit of patience on their part. In Numbers 9.22, it says, whether it was two days, a month, or a year that the cloud remained above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would remain encamped and not journey. And when it was taken up, they would journey. So I don't hear any complaints, and I don't hear any restlessness at this point. (laughs) So moving on to chapter 10, which you saw where the trumpets and different reasons for the trumpets, calling the Israelites to gather and move out, or when there was war or celebration. So the people of Israel had their marching orders, and according to verse 28, and they began their journey. And then in verse 33, and you can read that with me, it says So they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them for the three days journey to search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was above them by day when they went out from the camp. So it was, whenever the ark set out, that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord. Let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. So a little bit ago, we reviewed some of the names of God that we learned throughout the study. Well, there's another title in Genesis 14 El Elyon, God Most High. And it was mainly used in relation to the Gentiles and the enemies of God's people. So think about that in regards to enemies. Supreme authority over heaven and earth and all of the enemies of God. So God, it's go before us and take care of our enemies. And I love the sentiment of this prayer. We need not fear any enemy for our God is victorious. And listen to Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, and the writer of Hebrews adds boldly, we may boldly say when he quotes the Psalm, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Boldly and courageously, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, that is a, a verse that we can keep in mind and we can even shout it if we need to. Boldly and courageously, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Because it is a scary world. We know that. It is a scary world and enemies abound. But Galatians 1.4 says, Who gave himself for our sins, Christ, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Jesus delivers us from this present evil age, and that's not a time period, but rather whatever current world system is happening. So Christ is the ultimate deliverer from this evil age and from our enemies. Are you convinced of that? Do you move through this life confident in Christ, and fearless. He scattered the enemies of the Israelites, so he is more than able to protect us too. As a matter of fact, I love this, we've gone to the book of Hebrews a number of times in our study of the Pentateuch to see how Christ's ultimate sacrifice took the place of all of the sacrificing that they had to do, right? Well, in Hebrews 10.13, it says, This is Christ waiting for that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool. So I was thinking about this. Love, love that Christ took care of all of that being the supreme sacrifice. And so that's just a beautiful truth. But added to this too in Hebrews, none of the Old Testament sacrifices conquered Satan. But Jesus conquered the devil triumphed over the fallen angels, triumphed over all the rulers and authorities of all ages who reject him, and is now waiting until all his enemies are made a footstool by bowing at his feet. So he did that too in Hebrews. Isn't that wonderful? Not in Hebrews, but they're just talking about it. So with all of that in mind, what about your dedication to the one who saved your soul? and conquered your greatest enemy, which is death, eternal death. How does your worship look these days, ladies, in this fallen world? (laughs) Distracted or devout? What about obedience to your calling, your reasonable service? Are you content or discontent? Since he saved your soul, how dedicated are you? to proclaiming the good news to others about how they need a redeemer too. When I was doing the study and I'm deep in numbers and I am looking at how God's mercy is interwoven and how obedient the Israelites are being and just wonderful. And I get a call from my dad. He's 80 and he's not a believer And he had this friend, Terry, an old Navy buddy of his, 80. And not only not a believer, but pretty much an avowed atheist. And so my dad let me know. I knew that Terry had been dying for a while because he had cancer. So my dad just let me know that he's pretty much on his way out. This is sort of the last of the last weeks or days that he has. So I hung up with my dad and the Lord is prompting prompting me about this and that I need to call him, call Terry. And I said, but Lord, I've already, I sent him a card. I sent him a letter with a track. This was about five years ago. And then a couple months ago, I sent him just a note of encouragement and prayer and how I'm praying for you and God is good. And so I had words with the Lord over whether or not I needed to pick up the phone um, because I didn't really want to do it. I just was thinking, I've already tried, Lord. Do I have to? And again, reading about all the obedience of the Israelites and thinking that was just so great. So he asked me some questions. And when I say he asked me some questions, you know that I don't mean he audibly spoke to me. But this is what he asked me. Do you believe in my mercy? What about the gospel? Do you truly believe that the gospel saves? What about if it was your dad? Wouldn't you want someone to make a final call? And then when you know and when you hear that Terry has passed away, are you going to be glad that you didn't try? Or are you going to be sad that you didn't try? All right, Lord. So I pick up the phone (laughs) and I called him. And I just said, Terry, this is Brad's daughter. And I just want to know if you will permit me to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with you one last time. And he was very quiet for a moment. And he said, but I don't know what I can do now. And I said, well, I do. (laughs) And for 10, 15 minutes, because God is merciful and his gospel is true, I was able to talk to him about his creator and how he could have hope. I was able to read to him the thief on the cross and talk to him about there's a place that I call it right between heaven and earth where you are hanging and God in his goodness can grant you repentance. And so then I, he was very receptive and very thankful. And he um, he said, thank you so much for your concern. And I just said, promise me, promise me that you'll think about these things. And he did. He promised me that he would think about them. And then we said goodbye. <laughs> a couple weeks later, I found out that he had died. But you know what? I was sad, but I was a lot less sad than had I not made that phone call, just as God had said to me. And so saying that, ladies, I just want you know the, the lessons that we do to go deep and change our hearts, and then change what we do. God did not let me off the hook, but that was because I had my face in Numbers and I couldn't get around it. <laughs> and he's like, you want? To, you need to be obedient too, you know? So just that that does it, that it does its work, and that we should step out and be different, be different this week because of how God's word changes us. So that's our first chunk of Numbers. Our devoted separated, prepared, obedient group has departed from Sinai and they're on their way to the promised land with the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle. Everybody's performing their duties. God's face is shining on them and scattering their enemies and they're traveling and they're camping and their goal is in sight. So next time we meet, we'll see their progress or I should say lack of progress. So let me just pray to close. Lord, thank you so much For this time and these lovely women who come to be enriched by your word and fellowship, may we be obedient. May we love you with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And may we come back together with joy in you, ever praising you. In Christ's name, amen.